finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after, every, after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Vanessa. In the run-up to Easter season, we've been looking at this passage from Ephesians. Um, a few different reasons. The first is that uh, we heard this month that uh, my first pastor, Tim Keller in Manhattan, is stepping down. And the first sermon I ever heard was the one he preached on Ephesians and the armor of God. So this is sort of a, a memorial or a tribute to uh, his spiritual significance in my life and, and the Christian church. But also because this is a time when the church is being attacked, where churches not only are being attacked, but they're filled with dissension within. Um, before uh, February, I did a very brief introduction to a time of prayer where I mentioned how the politics of our time is pulling apart Christians. And it caused a huge reaction amongst you. You've been talking about it and sending emails. It made me think about spiritual warfare. And just so you know, this is a heads up, uh, the elders of our church have decided that this is such a big issue that uh, on Palm Sunday, next Palm Sunday, we are, that's the Sunday before Easter, we're going to have a special session at this church. Um, the elders, we're going to, after the service, and I'm going to speak a little bit about uh, divisions and politics within the church. After the service, the elders are going to form a panel, and every one of you, and I hope particularly the members who is interested, is invited to stay afterwards. We'll have food and child care. And we're going to talk about how to be a Christian church when within our church there are people with great passion on both sides of the political divide. How should Christians, how should the church deal with divisive politics. Can Republican Christians and Democratic Christians worship together? That's going to be the specific question we're going to look at. And so I encourage you to put that in your uh, calendar. Palm Sunday, um, that'll be in uh, April. And so please join us. In the meantime, let's look at uh, this passage again. The past two Sundays, we've talked about the issue of spiritual warfare, how it is both undervalued, people think that the idea of uh, Satan, the devil, spirits is ridiculous, and therefore tend to underestimate the significance of spiritual warfare, but then people some people tend to overestimate. They see a demon under every rock, a spirit in every event, and it becomes over-important in people's lives. Um, 
Paul has a more balanced way of looking at things. And he reminds us, as we saw last week, that although our fight is against a fallen angel, the devil, a spiritual force of great power, he is a finite power. God is infinite. God is the creator of all things, including the devil. And therefore, although he is more powerful than we are, he is not infinite in power. And therefore, as long as we put on the armor of faith, which is what Paul is talking about here, and take our stand, we don't have to fight him, we just have to stand and bear witness to our faith. We cannot be defeated. That's the essence of what Paul is saying here. Paul uses a metaphor. He compares the Christian life and faith with the armor that a Roman legionnaire would put on. And in fact, the, the pieces of armor that he talks about, the six pieces of armor, form a mnemonic, a way of remembering the six chapters of Ephesians. He talks about these in Ephesians. The armor is not something, some extraordinary mystical wonder metal. The armor is habits of faith, habits of Christian life. The way that we live together, the way that we treat our spouses, our children, the way that we run our households. There's nothing esoteric about it. It is the mundane truth about how Christians are meant to live. So this week we're looking at verse 15. With your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. And also we'll talk a little bit about the shield of faith. But this, the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, this was the first sermon I ever heard. It was remarkable to go back and look at this passage. So what is Paul talking about? Remember, this is a metaphor. He is not saying, get armored up and go off on crusades and stomp on bad people. This is not a call to militarism or crusades or jihad or holy war. The purpose is to be able to stand firm, to resist attack. We have a hero, Jesus Christ. He is a hero because he fights the fights, the spiritual fights, that we cannot fight. Ultimately, including death. All he asks us to do, the church, is stand up and bear witness to him. We don't have to fight as he does. We just have to stand alongside him. That's the idea here. But each piece of this armor has a particular spiritual resonance, and, and that's why it's worth looking at them. With your feet fitted with, ready, with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. What does it mean that your feet are fitted with readiness? Well, Romans, the soldiers, had special footgear. The civilians had a soft leather sandal called a calisai. I'm sure I pronounced that wrong. But Romans were issued a specific kind of boot sandal called a caliga. And that's the word that Paul uses here. Now, what was that? It was a heavy sole sandal with leather thongs wrapped up the calf to, to keep them on firm. Half like a boot, it protected the front of the feet. 
But its main significance were the soles, layers of leather, and on the bottom it was nailed with hobnails. They formed cleats. And the particular function of them was like modern-day football gear or running gear or soccer or rugby boots. The feet were protected so that the soldiers could cover uh, any kind of ground, and particularly muddy or loose or wet ground. The hobnails were like cleats on a football field. They allowed them to be nimble. And particularly, as we'll see, they allowed them the soldiers to dig in so that when they were pushing and shoving against the enemy, they could not be pushed backwards. The cleats would allow them to dig in. And so the image Paul conjures here is if you've got these boots on, you are ready for action. You're ready to go with your comrades wherever the battle is, over any terrain, and there you are able to stand your ground. You cannot be pushed around while you're wearing these. Well, it's an odd connection, right? Military boots, gospel of peace. Where do you, how do you get from boots to the gospel of peace? Well, the point here is, what does the gospel of peace actually do in the lives of Christians? You know, we celebrated that peace today. We stood up, and we offered peace to each other. Why did we do that? Because Christians are those that God formerly were, we were adversarial towards God, but now through Christ, God has reconciled Christians to himself and to each other. The peace that we share is a supernatural peace, a gift from God through the sacrifice of Jesus. Because on the cross, Jesus put to death all the enmity, all the ugliness, all the strife. And therefore, we can treat each other like family, brothers and sisters with one father. Well, why is that like military boots? It means that when we are challenged, we are ready to resist. I mean, you, you saw all our small group leaders up here. This is not some, some kind of esoteric spiritual battle. It is hard to be a Christian, even just to be a person in the city. Cities are harsh. They are alienating. They're filled with expense and difficulties. And many, many people who move to the city for their career move alone. They leave their families behind. And they try to exist in this harsh, expensive place. What does the church do? What does our church do? Well, it does many things. But one of the primary things that we do for each other is support each other. Help each other to live in this difficult city. You heard it said, if, if you have a problem in the city, your immediate small group is like a family. If you need to move, if you need uh, food, if you need childcare in an emergency, if you need anything, the fellowship group, the church, is your support system. It's what allows you to stand. It's what allows you to stay. It is what allows you to be strong and have a, a family that can flourish here in the city. If you are at peace 
with people around you and you have a problem, you can ask them. They're available to you for help because you are at peace with them. You can ask for help or advice. You can f quickly form a group to resolve some problem. You have skills and knowledge at short notice. You can borrow and lend things. You can do this all without professional help, without bureaucratic formality, without contracts. You just do it as a favor. Early in my Christian career, I was in Manhattan. I was a small group director. That was my job. And 9-11 happened. And 9-11 shook New York to the core, as you know. Many institutions closed down. The city closed down. All the bridges shut down. People were freaked out. They didn't know how to behave and what to do. But at the time, the church in Manhattan had something like three or 400 small groups. And spontaneously, without anybody telling them, without any formal plan, these groups, who are used to inviting people into their homes, who are used to taking care of each other, who saw supporting other people as part of their life, they invited their co-workers. They invited people who were trapped in the city. They invited people who had no family to turn to. And they took care of thousands, those three or 400 groups care of thousands and thousands of people. The following Sunday, our church doubled in size. We had to, on the fly, create two services because so many people came. Because they had been supported and taken care of. And suddenly, when every other institution seemed shaken and in doubt, the church was there. Because the people were there. Because the people were standing strong together. That's what it means. When you have a group of people at peace with each other, who love each other, who are used to taking care of each other, then no matter what happens, they will stand. When every other institution falls apart, Christ promises us the church will stand forever. And so if you are part of that church, you are safe. You can trust your neighbor. You can trust because they're family. And of course the trouble is that we, like all other human beings, squabble with each other. We have feuds. We have problems. We have all kinds of issues. The challenge of the church is to keep that peace. So that when and if we do upset each other, we will reconcile. We will recognize that a broken relationship within the church is a wound in the body of Christ that mars Christ's body. And therefore, it is an imperative to heal and be reunited and reconcile. And of course, we have the great example of Christ reconciling us to God. It is in the DNA of the church to forgive, to reconcile, to repair and restore. And that's what allows us to live together. I once watched a documentary in England, um, this biologist who spent his life watching baboons. And he said, you know, baboons have a great life. They, they live in large groups, and the males have these huge fangs. And apart from the leopards, they don't fear anything. Leopards periodically will steal one. 
But most of the time, they live great lives. They've got plenty of food. They've got a great social structure. The trouble is, they bicker. They squabble. They steal from each other. They fight each other. They gang up. They ostracize. They commit adultery all the time. They betray. There's one um, member of the pack, this guy, he showed the film of it, would just go around poking other baboons just, to, just because they had nothing else to do. And there was constant turmoil and eruptions and division. And He said they would have a great life if they could just learn to get along. But they're baboons, so they just provoke each other. Well, we, because of Christ, can do better than baboons. And that's what the church is. It's a bunch of sinners left to our own devices. We'd be like two-year-old children. But with Christ as our head, with his forgiveness as the basic principle of our union, we can learn to be like him. We can learn to get on. And so that's what the gospel of peace is. The principle that allows us to be ready to turn to each other when there's a crisis, to restore when things go wrong, when relationships are broken. And we can do that because of Jesus. You know, Paul, when he was writing the letter to the church in Ephesus, he was writing to uh, the church in Colossae and Familion at the same time, and he would send them out with the same courier oftentimes, one letter to one place and another to another. And so when you read Colossians, many of these same principles are in there. And I'd like to just read part of Colossians because it's where he expands on this notion. This is Colossians 3. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. This is going to be important when we think about politics. Outside the church, politics is the highest value. It's what defines many people. You are defined by what you think and believe, politically. But that is not true of Christians. Our political identity is not our highest self, is not our highest identity. Our highest identity is Christ. That's why we're called Christians. That's why we form the Christian church, his body active in the world. We are not defined by earthly things. One writer put it this way, St. Augustine. Our citizenship is not in this world. We are not primarily American citizens or whatever citizenship you are. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are like all of us, like resident aliens. Here for a time, but we're on a journey, a pilgrimage to our final home. And therefore, we should wear, it doesn't mean that we can be passionate, but we should wear our earthly identity lightly in comparison with our heavenly identity. We can be passionate 
and interested in things in this world, but we are not defined by this world. We're defined by where we're going. Paul continues, here, there is in the church, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. We are not defined by our skin color. We're not defined by our politics, our nationality. We are not defined by how clever or stupid we are. We're not defined by what we believe or don't believe, apart from Christ. All these other identities, male or female, free or slave, professional identity, whatever it is, family background, whatever divisions people come up with in the world to divide people from each other, those no longer rule us because we are in Christ. That is our first and primary identity now. Everything else is secondary. And that gives us permission to be in communion, that is to be in relationship, a loving family relationship with people who superficially are different from us. Because ultimately, in Christ, they're not. They're family. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Because of this new identity, we have the resources to forgive each other. We don't have to hold grievances. We don't have to hold people's past against them forever. They are becoming a new creation just as we are. And so we can be hopeful for each other. We can define each other by our best and what we're becoming, not by our worst and what we were. We are marching together towards Christ. And that should be how we view each other. The people that you see around you right now, think about this one. The people around you right now, maybe some of them you've only glimpsed, smiled at, nodded across the room. They are the people who are going to be in your life for all eternity. Not just 40 years or 50 years, 100 years. They're going to be in your life when the mountains wear down, when the rivers stop flowing, when the sun stops stops shining. The people around you right now are forever. And therefore, get used to each other. And you better be looking at the best and what they're becoming and not the past. Because we are stuck with each other. In fact, that's the wrong way of putting it. We are God's gift to each other. Forever. Start enjoying the gift. Don't let trivial passing things divide you from eternal friends, is the principle. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace, and be thankful. Now, some of you are thinking, that's easy for you to say, Pastor, but you haven't met my mother. 
or my brother, or my coworker, or somebody in my neighborhood, you haven't had done to you the things that have been done to me. First thing to say is, every one of us, every single one of us, bears pain. When Christ says Christians will be required to, ke- to take up their cross, that's what he's talking about. Every one of us suffers in different ways, but all of us suffer. How can you be at peace with somebody, though, who has made you suffer? Well, here's my recommendation. Think of the person that annoys you most. The one you've had a grudge against for the longest time. The person that you hate. Although, by the way, hate is very rare. It takes a lot of passion and emotional energy to hate somebody. But right now, there is somebody in every one of your minds. Maybe it's an embarrassment. Maybe it's a person that you've shunned and tried to avoid thinking about. Maybe it's somebody in your past that you've sort of rejected and shut away. Maybe it's the person right next to you right now. Here's my suggestion. Every single one of you, either right now or very shortly, will be irritated, upset, aggrieved by somebody because we're all sinners. Try praying for them. Here's my challenge to you. For one week, start today. Write this name down. You don't have to show anybody else. Write this name down. And start praying for them. Pray about what happened between you, but also start praying that God would work in their life. That God would give them what they deserve. Maybe that is a good life. And I will promise you, because I've tried this, it is almost impossible, in fact it is impossible, to stay angry at somebody that you're praying for. Because God is right there. And he is all about love, and he's all about forgiveness, and he created that person, and is in relationship with that person just as much as you, and he is working on your heart as you pray. Try it. Some of you have been burdened down for months and years with a grudge and bitterness and a joyless, fierce anger. It's not going to do you any good. Bring it to God. See what happens. It doesn't mean you have to smile and be nice. Just bring it to God and see what he does about it. Final thought here. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. So I've had all this fun looking at Roman armor and what they're all about. And there were two, two kinds of shields. There was a little one. You've probably seen this in every gladiator movie you've seen. It was sort of a one-on-one combat, a little round shield that was strapped on the forearm. But the legionnaires also had a bigger shield. It's called a scutum, a large, big, oblong shield with a metal edge. You've seen it in every Roman movie you've ever watched. And Paul uses that word, the word for that larger shield. So he's specifically talking about that big one. What does he have in mind? Well, the Roman Empire expanded because they would send out legions, and they'd have to face any kind of enemy And typically, 
they just closed on the enemy, and the guys up front put up their big shield, and the guys behind would push. They were all wearing those, those great boots with the hobnails, and they would just push them way through the lines of the enemy. Some particularly vicious fighting up front with the swords, but it was basically a shoving match. And once the line was broken, the enemy was routed. But against more organized and disciplined militaries, when they advanced, there'd also be archers there. Men throwing javelins and spears, uh, darts. There was a particularly ugly kind called a plumbata from the Latin word plumbum for lead. And it was sort of a weighted barbed dart. And they would throw these over the heads of their men against the opposing soldiers. And they would stick in, make these horrible wounds, and then kind of dangle there. Weighted darts stuck in your flesh. I mean, can you imagine trying to fight when that's happening? And of course, flaming arrows. What the legionnaires had figured out how to do with their shields, though, is the metal edge had, it sort of overlapped. It was scooped out. So you could lock it against the shield of your neighbor. And then those behind could put the shields up like a roof. You've seen this in movies too. It was a particular formation. It's called a tortoise. And once a legion had formed a tortoise, they're wearing their tough boots so they can cross any line or stand firm on any line. They're protected, and as long as they're disciplined, as long as they remain harmonious with their neighbor, with their shields locked, they're impregnable. They could stand up to anything. It was like an early tank. And the Legion's success was they could go anywhere in the known world, on any terrain, at any kind of time of year, and against any power of their age. And with this formation, batter their way through any defense or attack. It's why the Roman Empire grew so large. Well, think of that application to the church. What happens when we stand up side by side with our faith united in Christ? No matter what the attack, no matter what our doubts, no matter what the world says about us, we are undefeatable. Because our faith is in the person of Christ. And he's God. And he can take on anybody. There is no power in the world that can stand up to Jesus Christ. There is nobody and no thing, no institution, and no group of institutions that can ever prevail against him. And as long as people have faith in that, the church will last. If you read the Gospels, Jesus spends most of his life, the early part of his ministry, gathering people together, you know, most uh, famously the disciples, and forming with the apostles the foundation, the first small group, and the foundation of his church. And he teaches them, and he lives with them, and he, wor- and he travels with them, until one point. It's in Matthew. Oh, I'd like to read it to you. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? He's talking about himself. They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You 
of the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. Peter is the word for rock. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Why does the church stand? Because of our faith that Jesus is Lord. That is the rock, that faith, that commitment, is the rock on which Jesus built his church. And as long as we stand together in faith, there is nothing that can challenge what's going on in this room. You know, sometimes it can feel just like a social club, ephemeral. What if nobody shows up on a Sunday? But you know, when America was attacked, the church stood firm. When you are attacked, the people around you will stand firm. As long as your faith is in Jesus as Lord, you don't put any other faith before that. And as long as you stay united with your brothers and sisters, this church, Jesus promises it, will last forever. Will stand up to the gates of hell. There is nothing to fear. There is no power of this age that can overthrow it. And so, everything that you love, the people that you love, your family, put them in the church. Build a life inside the church. Have relationships in the church. Commit yourself to your family. And you're going to be safe. And all the controversies around us and all the threats of war and problems, are just threats. They can't touch you. Your faith will stand firm because your church and those around you are standing firm. That's the promise. That's what Paul is talking about here. We'll talk about it more in the future. But think about what I've said. And especially think about that person, that irritant, and consider praying for him. Let's pray right now. Lord, we thank you that you didn't just return to heaven. You left behind a church, a group of men and women with faith in you. Faith that's a rock. Faith that is immovable because you are immovable. Lord, show us how to truly be your church. Teach us how to reconcile and love one another. Show us what it means to stand up and witness your presence in our life. Show us, Lord, how to be a church for the ages and not just for the moment. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. As we continue to worship now,